0: As always, Holy Spirit, we are so dependent on You to teach to us and to illumine us. I'm so thankful that You have given to us the promise that the Holy Spirit will call to mind the words of Jesus Christ and will clarify the Word of God and bring it alive in our hearts and in our minds. So we ask You to speak to our hearts this morning. In Your name we pray. Amen. Well, I wanted to ask John this morning to uh, sing a couple of verses of a 15th century um, medieval Latin hymn that's taken from Zephaniah 115, but unfortunately, he didn't know the song. So let me just share you the first couple of verses, okay? It goes like this, day of wrath, O day of mourning, see fulfill the prophet's warning heaven and earth in ashes burning. Oh, what fear man's bosom rendeth when from heaven the judge descendeth on whose sentence all dependeth. (laughs) Now, let's face it. Um, We don't talk much about the judgment of God, do we? And we certainly don't sing about it. Anybody sing a judgment song recently? Yeah. Uh, I was asking John, and he gave me the name of a few songs. The only one I could think about is the uh, Battle Hymn of the Republic. You know, he's marching out the grapes of wrath and all that. But we don't sing about it m- very much. And yet the truth is that, folks, there is a judgment day coming. And that's kind of the theme of this book of Zephaniah. In fact, uh, the truth of Zephaniah one fifteen, that that hymn came from, uh, it really speaks loud and clear. It says... It will be a day when the Lord's anger is poured out, a day of terrible distress and anguish, a day of ruin and desolation, a day of darkness and gloom, a day of clouds and blackness. So this morning, I want us to look at Zephaniah. Zephaniah is a 7th century prophet prophesied in those years, uh, right maybe a few decades before the fall of Jerusalem to the Babylonians. Um, Zephaniah is a contemporary of Jeremiah. Jeremiah was, uh, was prophesying about the same time that Zephaniah was. And so in, in chapter one <coughs> and in verse one, we're introduced to the prophet. If you have your Bibles, open them to Zephaniah 1.1, 1, 1, or it'll be here on the screen as well, or you've got them in your notes there. <coughs> Zephaniah 1.1, 1, 1, and I'm reading from the New Living Translation. It says this, The Lord gave this message to Zephaniah when Josiah, son of Ammon, was king over Judah. Zephaniah was the son of Cushi, the son of Gedaliah, uh, son of Amariah, son of Hezekiah. Now, Zephaniah is the only one of these prophets, major prophets, minor prophets, that traces his lineage, his family lineage, to four generations. Now, why is that so? Well, quite possibly... What Zephaniah wanted us to know, and although this isn't firm and, and certain, a lot of Bible scholars lean this direction. What Zephaniah is trying to tell us is that his great-great-grandfather was King Hezekiah of Judah. Did you catch that? Son of Amariah, son of Hezekiah. Thus, it could be that Zephaniah is of noble birth and that he is a cousin and an extended family member of King Josiah, who is on the throne of Judah at the time that Zephaniah is preaching. (coughs) Now, for us to really understand this book, let me give you a little bit of historical background. One of the things that, as we've worked through these minor prophets this summer, Uh, we've run into history over and over and over again because these are historical figures living in a historical era, ministering and prophesying in historical situations. So this is in a time when the Assyrian kingdom is in dominance. In fact, they have been dominating the region for about 100 years. Uh, and as a result of that, both Israel in the northern kingdom and Judah in the southern kingdom were vassal states under Assyria. That is, they paid tribute or they paid taxes to Assyria to, to maintain the peace, to maintain a good relationship. Well, one of the things that that also happened is not only did Judah and Israel pay taxes or tribute to Assyria, but Assyria imported into both of those countries the pagan worship of the Assyrian gods and introduced them to all the <coughs> excuse me the different idolatry that they were involved in so it was a very negative negative kind of relationship well before zephaniah's day the northern kingdom of israel fell the Assyrian army, for some reason, they got mad at the Israel and they came in and they wiped out the northern kingdom and deported the people. And so all that's left now is the southern kingdom of Judah. Now, when Hezekiah died, and we think that's the great-great-grandfather of Zephaniah, when Hezekiah died, his son Manasseh came to the throne. Hezekiah had been a godly king. He had worshipped God. He had had a, had a, a deep desire to follow God and follow His directives. Manasseh, on the other hand, went 180 degrees in the other direction. In fact, Scripture says he was the most wicked king of all the kings that reigned either in the northern kingdom or in the southern kingdom. He was a wicked kingdom. In fact, listen to the record from 2 Kings chapter 21. It says, he did what was evil in the Lord's sight following the detestable practices of the pagan nations that the Lord had driven from the land ahead of the Israelites. He rebuilt the pagan shrines. His father Hezekiah had torn down all those pagan uh, worship centers. (coughs) He constructed altars for Baal and he set up Asherah poles. Those were kind of sacred totem poles that the people worship pagan gods at. He also bowed before all the powers of heaven and worshiped them. He built pagan altars in the temple of the Lord. He built these altars for all the powers of the heavens in both courtyards of the Lord's temple. Manasseh also sacrificed his own son in the fire. And that would have been to Malek, the, the god of the Assyrians. He practiced sorcery and divination, and he consulted with mediums and psychics. He did much that was evil in the Lord's sight, arousing his anger. So Manasseh was a wicked king, but Manasseh wasn't alone in his his idolatry, because the people of Judah were complicit in it as well. So two years after Manasseh's death, his son came to the throne, but was quickly assassinated by some of his servants. And so now Manasseh's grandson, Josiah, comes to the throne. In fact, he comes to the throne at an early age. He's about eight or nine years old when he comes to the throne. So he's a boy king, but he was the exact opposite of Manasseh. He sought the Lord with all of his heart. In fact, again, Scripture says that of all the kings other than King David, Josiah was probably the most righteous, the one whose heart was really toward God. And so he began a religious revival and political reform in the land. Now, that reform, that revival, really took, um, uh, really was accelerated by an event that happened in Assyria. The king of Assyria died. With his death. The Assyrian Empire began to just collapse. Became so weak that within just a few years, the Babylonians, the Babylonian army, came, overran Assyria and its capital city of Nineveh. And we've talked about Nineveh all these uh, this summer long. Uh, they were wiped from the scene, and so it was in this vacuum of power in the region that Josiah was able to begin this religious reform, this political change in in the country. Some speculate that adding to that religious revival was the preaching of Zephaniah, because Zephaniah comes in and he's preaching about the judgment of God on the sins of the the nation. And he's really zealous for the Lord and, and for God's holiness, and he's preaching against it. And it's interesting though, that the revival that occurred, and it was a great revival. Uh, Josiah tore down all these pagan shrines and the Asherah poles and everything, just really brought in a religious revival in the land. Unfortunately, when he died, with him died the reform. With him died uh, the, the revival that was taking place. And uh, the nation then reverted back to idolatry under Josiah's son, who was King uh, Joahaz. In fact, Jeremiah, again, who was a contemporary of Zephaniah, described the revival under Josiah in these words. He said, Judah did not return to me with all her heart, but only in pretense, declares the Lord. And so maybe it's because of this insincere repentance that Zephaniah was so ferocious in his condemnation, of the sins of the nation, of his proclamation of the judge, coming judgment of God. And so he begins this book with an announcement of the fact that God's day of judgment is coming on the land. It's, it's that day of the Lord that we've talked about throughout this summer, uh, the day when uh, you, the end of times when God will bring judgment, but also bring salvation. So as we look at this book, we start with the very first chapter, And it really talks about the great, God's great day of judgment that's coming. All of chapter two and first three verses of chapter, uh, excuse me, all of chapter one and first three verses of chapter two. So it begins with (coughs) just a general statement that judgment is coming on the earth. Verse 2, I will sweep away everything from the face of the earth, says the Lord. I will sweep away people and animals alike. I will sweep away the birds of the sky and the fish of the sea. I will reduce the wicked to heaps of rubble, and I will wipe humanity from the face of the earth, says the Lord. So he begins with a general statement of God's judgment, but very quickly, Zephaniah moves to now proclaim God's judgment on Judah and on Jerusalem. Look at verse four. I will crush Judah and Jerusalem with my fist and destroy every last trace of their Baal worship. I will put an end to all the idolatrous priests so that even the memory of them will disappear. For they go up to their roofs and they bow down to the sun and moon and stars. They claim to follow the Lord, but then they worship Molech too. I will destroy those who used to worship me, but now no longer do. They no longer ask for the Lord's guidance or seek my blessings. Stand in silence in the presence of the sovereign Lord, for the awesome day of the Lord's judgment is near. The Lord has prepared His people for great slaughter and has chosen their executioners. Now, I think these words of judgment come as an absolute surprise to the people of Judah. I mean, after all, they had heard so many promises that had been given to them over the generations of how God loved Israel, how God loved the Jewish people, how uh, the the city of Jerusalem was the city that He had put His name on. And, And they just knew full well that city would remain forever. They couldn't imagine that this place where God had enthroned Himself would one day be, would be gone, that it could ever fall. You know, judgment against other nations, sure, they could understand that. But certainly not on Judah. Certainly not on Jerusalem, or so they thought. <coughs> but the truth really is just the opposite, if you think about it. Because Judah stood in front of a line for the judgment of God. Why? Because they were God's covenant people. Uh, They had benefited from the revelation of God Himself. They had received the blessings of God. I mean, they had the privilege of hearing all those great prophets of God, such as Zephaniah. Theirs was the tabernacle, the temple, the the law that had been delivered from the very hands of God to Moses. They heard the teachings of the prophets and worship under the leadership of the priests. And so that kind of relationship... uh, that really meant that they also had to receive God's judgment for their failure to heed his warnings and his, his instructions. See, they had refused to follow God and their choice to serve other gods is the reason that God's hand of discipline was coming on them. In fact, the prophet Amos put it this way, Amos 3.2, from among all the families on the earth, I have been intimate with you alone. That is why I must punish you for all your sins. See, these were God's people, and they had, they had strayed away. And God says, You're my people. I must bring chastisement upon you. These are the people that, you know, that Zephaniah is speaking to here. They're God's people. <clears throat> and he's bringing, you know, Zephaniah is saying, You're going to be objects of God's wrath. I think there's a corollary thought there for all of us. We speak very easily about God's grace and God's mercy, don't we? I mean, we delight in the fact that God is gracious to us, that through Jesus Christ we have the forgiveness of sin. Through Jesus Christ we have the gift of eternal life. Through Jesus Christ uh, we know that our, that our lives are secure. But how many times do we tread on God's grace? How many times do we, do we, we step on His mercy? Um, we can't overlook the fact, folks, that God is also a righteous judge. And Scripture is very plain, very plain, that every one of us will, is accountable to God. That every one of us will give an account to God for how we live out our lives here on this earth. In fact, Paul said this in Romans chapter four, 14 and verse 10 and then verse 12. He says, remember, and, he, and Paul's talking to Christians here, okay? Talking to you and me, all right? Remember, we will all stand before the judgment seat of God. Yes, each of us will give a personal account to God. Folks, we must not ever tread on God's mercy and on God's grace. Instead, we need to strive to live holy lives, working every day to please God through how we live, through what we say, through how we act. Um, listen to what Peter said. Peter kind of reminds me of the, the, the people of, Jew, of Jerusalem in Zephaniah's day. Peter says this, For the time has come for judgment and it must begin with God's household. And if judgment begins with us, what terrible fate awaits those who have never obeyed God's good news? (laughs) Folks, the, the theme of judgment really runs throughout both the Old Testament and the New Testament. There are lots of different judgments that are proclaimed in Scripture. It starts back in the book of Genesis with the judgment of Adam and Eve for their disobedience toward God. It moves to the judgment that came with a worldwide flood under, uh, you know, during the, during the time of Noah. It continued in, uh, at Babel when God confused the languages, all the people who were speaking there. Uh, there was the judgment of, of Egypt through the 10 plagues that, were, that, were, that came from the hand of God. And then, let's skip all the way down to maybe the most important judgment that has ever taken place, and that's the judgment of our sins at the cross of Jesus Christ. See, that's what the cross is about. God bringing judgment on our sins, but pouring them on His Son, Jesus Christ. That's the judgment for our sins. But you go on and... and um, the future is going to see judgments taking place during the tribulation period for all those who are unbelievers. And and you know, in the book of Revelation, it goes on and on and on talking about various judgments that are coming on unbelievers. There's the judgment uh, of the nations that is described in the teachings of Jesus in Matthew chapter 25. Uh, There's the judgment seat of Christ where the resurrected and, and for that matter raptured believers in heaven will be judged for their works. Now, sin is not in view at that judgment because that, that penalty has already been paid at the cross of Jesus Christ. But it talks about we're going to be judged for our faithfulness and service toward God. And he, and he talks about any kind of selfish work or work that's out of our own selfish motives, Will be burned up, and those things that are for god 's glory and for god 's good <clears throat> will those that have lasting values will be will survive and they 'll be rewarded. And the bible says you know that we 'll receive crowns given for our faithfulness to the to the father uh, there 's also the judgment of angels. did you realize that believers are going to judge angels now we don 't know exactly what all that means, but obviously these angels that are going to be judged are probably those fallen angels who, who uh, followed Satan in his rebellion against God. And then <coughs> there, there's the great white throne judgment. That's the final judgment of unbelievers for their sins. And it occurs at the end of the world and all believers from all ages will be judged for their sins and they'll be consigned to the lake of fire. Let me mention one final, and I put it in quotes, judgment, because it really isn't a judgment. I use that word loosely because, again, as believers, our judgment as sinners is an accomplished fact. Jesus Christ paid the penalty for that. We're not judged for our sins as followers of Jesus Christ. But what God does now is He disciplines us. He chastens us. Listen to Hebrews chapter 12. The writer of Hebrews goes into a great uh, dissertation about how God uh, corrects us and chastens us. Hebrews 12 verse 5, and have you forgotten the encouraging words God spoke to you as his children? Now, these are going to be encouraging words. Keep that in mind, okay? He said, my child, do not think lightly of the Lord's discipline. And don't give up when He corrects you. And you and I are saying, well, God's discipline, God's correction. How can that be encouraging to me? He goes on and he said, for the Lord disciplines those He loves. He punishes each one He accepts as His child. As you endure this divine discipline, remember, God is treating you as His own children. Who ever heard of a child who is never disciplined by its father? If God doesn't discipline you as He does all of His children, it means that you're illegitimate and are not really His children at all. Since we respect our earthly fathers who disciplined us, shouldn't we submit even more to the discipline of the Father of our spirits and live forever? For our earthly fathers disciplined us for a few years, doing the best they knew how. But God's discipline is always good for us, so we might share in His holiness. I say all of that to remind us once again that one day we'll give an account to God for how we lived our life toward pleasing Him and serving Him faithfully. (coughs) Zephaniah spoke to the people of God in Judah about that coming day, that day of judgment. And and look what he says here in the last part of chapter one about that day. He says that coming day will first of all, be a day of wrath beginning in verse 14. That terrible day of the Lord is near swiftly. It comes a day of bitter tears, a day when even strong men will cry out. It will be a day when the Lord's anger is poured out a day of terrible distrust and anguish. Uh, a day of ruin and desolation, a day of darkness and gloom, a day of clouds and blackness. A day of trumpet calls and battle cries. Down go the walled cities and strongest battlements. Because you have sinned against the Lord, I will make you grope around like the blind. Your blood will be poured out into the dust and your bodies will lie rotting on the ground. Your silver and gold will not save you on that day of the Lord's anger. For the whole land will be devoured by the fire of His jealousy. He will make a terrifying end of all the people on earth. Folks, you and I must never, ever, ever forget that God is a holy God. And He demands holiness from His creatures. And all of us, though, folks, we're unholy. Let's just face it, okay? All have sinned and fall short of God's design. All of us fall under the penalty of sin. The wages of sin is death. That is, that's what the wrath of God is all about. It's His judgment against sin in our life. And yet throughout Scripture, here's the key thing, throughout Scripture, God is always calling people to choose life. God doesn't want to judge us. God doesn't want to judge unbelief. He calls us to turn to Him, to repent, to believe in Him, (coughs) to choose life. That's why Jesus Christ came. He came to take God's wrath in our place and then to give us His very holiness. God says, be holy. And through Jesus Christ, we stand before God, holy and righteous in His righteousness. You see, to receive the forgiveness that God wants to give us through Jesus Christ, (coughs) that righteousness from Jesus Christ, we must, and it's really found in this very next section of Zephaniah, we must repent and return to Him, repent from the direction we're going and turn in a new direction and toward God and embrace God through our faith in Jesus Christ as Lord and as Savior. <laughs> so it's going to be a day of judgment. But then the second thing he says, it's going to be a day for repentance. And that's in chapter two, beginning at verse one. He Here's the, the prophet and he's making this announcement. Judgment is coming. And because of that, He says, there's an immediate action you need to take. And what is that action? It's repentance in the hopes that God would relent. Uh, He says, do so now while there's time. Um, Look at at verse 2. Excuse me, chapter 2, verse 1. He says, gather together. Yes, gather together, you shameless nations. Gather before judgment begins. Before your time to repent is blown away like chaff act now before the fierce fury of the Lord falls and the terrible day of the Lord's anger begins. In other words, do it now while there's still time. Seek the Lord, all, uh, all who are humble, and follow His command. Seek to do what is right and to live humbly. Perhaps even yet, did you catch that? Perhaps even yet the Lord will protect you. Protect you from His anger on that day of destruction. So in other words, here is Zephaniah and he's He's been uh, really demanding, Um, he's been really delivering God's message to the people. And now he changes his whole approach. And now there are words of admonition to to repent, to return to God. And look at, look at the five admonitions that are given here. He says, gather together, act now, seek the Lord, seek to do what is right, seek to live humbly before God. You know, this, um, Call to seek the Lord and to seek righteousness, to seek a right relationship with God. <clears throat> this idea of seeking the Lord really is a technical term that means to worship and to obey God. And, and so here's the bottom line, folks. You can't seek God without striving after right action and without displaying humility before God. Um, genuine worship will always result in right behavior genuine worship will always result in right beha- behavior if you come here and you worship and then you go from this place and you you live like the devil the rest of the week you haven't rightly worshiped because genuine worship right worship will always result in right behavior right actions you see in the old testament righteousness is the behavior that meets the demands of that relationship. And and if the relationship is with God, then our righteousness means that we're meeting the demands of that relationship with God. You know, if you have a genuine relationship with God, it means that you're going to be doing the right things, okay? Doesn't doesn't that make sense? And and what are the right things? They're the actions and the attitudes and the behaviors that are defined By God Himself. Not not our definition of what's right and how we ought to live and how we ought to behave. But we live by God's definition. And how do you know what God wants us to do? Page after page after page in this Word. God gives to us His directives, His His instructions. So, another thought about it. If we have a right relationship with God, it will always result in a right relationship with one another. And, and if you find yourself out of sorts with a fellow human being it's pretty much a sign that you're out of sorts with your heavenly father as well because they go hand in glove a relationship with god a relationship with with our fellow man the last part of chapter 2 is a section called the judgment of nations we're not going to read that but it's just it's some judgments or judgment oracles that zephaniah give against the nations surrounding uh, Judah. He's going to start with the Philistines and then he's going to talk about the Moabites and the Ammonites and, the, and Cush or Ethiopia. And he's going to end up with what's left of Assy- the Assyrian empire. And so as you look at it, Zephaniah is pointing out that God is going to judge all the surrounding nations, those to the west, those to the east, those to the south, and those to the north. So in chapter three, then we enter a, a section which is so typical of most of the minor prophets. They start with the negative, and they always end on a positive, hopeful note. So we're going to look at the future hope. And what we're going to learn in chapter three is that God is not through with his people, because out of the darkness comes the dawn of God's love and, and God's care for his people. So Zephaniah has been called the fiercest of God's prophets. In fact, some people don't even want Zephaniah. In, in the Bible because it is so negative about God's judgment. And yet his, in his fierceness against sin, uh, the sin of the people, Zephaniah knew that God was, was at work and that he was building a faithful remnant of people who still believed in him, who still sought to follow him, who still sought to live righteously. And so... <coughs> out of this judgment is going to come a time when God is going to restore the fortunes of that remnant of believers who are left in Judah. He begins, however, with an announcement of the destruction of the rebellion uh, in verses 1 through 8. Here's another declaration, Judah and Jerusalem, you're under the wrath of God, you're objects of His wrath. And again, He sets them up. He's just talked about God's going to judge all these other nations and the Jewish people are going right on. Go get them, man. They're our enemies. Go get them. And then what does Zephaniah do? He switches. And now the judgment is on Judah and the judgment is on Jerusalem. Uh, And so he, he again, he does that because the presumption is that Judah is not going to repent because they're an obstinate, they're rebellious people. And so in verses 1 through 4, he talks about their sin. He says, what sorrow awaits rebellious, polluted Jerusalem, the city of violence and crime. No one can tell it anything. It refuses all correction. It does not trust in the Lord or draw near to its God. Its leaders are like roaring lions hunting for their victims. Its judges are like ravenous wolves at evening time, who by dawn have left no trace of their prey. Its prophets are arrogant liars seeking their own gain. Its priests defile the temple by disobeying God's instructions. So here's the indictment against Jerusalem. I mean, no one can tell it anything. You know, it, it, it's, it's so arrogant and, and so uh, refusing correction anyway. It doesn't trust God. And so the result is the leadership is polluted. Justice is polluted. Here are the priests who speak falsely for their own profit here are the priests who certainly are unholy in everything they do. Then he talks about in verse 5 through 7, Jerusalem's stubbornness. He says, the Lord is still there in the city and he does no wrong. Day by day, he hands down justice and he does not fail. But the wicked know no shame. I have wiped out many nations, devastating their fortress walls and towers. Their streets are now deserted. Their cities lie in silent ruin. There are no survivors, none at all. I thought, and this is God speaking, surely they will have reverence for me now. Surely they will listen to my warnings. Then I won't need to strike again, destroying their homes. But no, they get up early to continue their evil deeds. See, verse 5 here is this sharp contrast between God who is righteous, God who does no wrong, God who is continually faithful, and Jerusalem, the people of Judah, who on the other hand were certainly stubborn. They wouldn't heed the warnings uh, of judgment of the surrounding nations. They wouldn't heed the warnings of the prophets that God had sent to them over and over and over again. Um, Repentance, folks, would have averted judgment on this nation, but they wouldn't have anything of it. They just were arrogant and stubborn. But then we have in verse 8, the beginning of a message of hope. Therefore, be patient, says the Lord. Soon I will stand and accuse those these evil nations. For I have decided to gather the kingdoms of the earth and pour out my fiercest anger and fury on them. All the earth will be devoured by the fire of my jealousy. What is interesting in the, in the Hebrew language here is the the voice of the verb, the the voice tense changes, leading us to an obvious understanding that Zephaniah is now talking to a different group of people. Before, he had been talking to stubborn, uh, arrogant Jewish people who wouldn't repent. But now he's changed a tone, and he's really beginning to talk probably to the poor in the land who were still seeking righteousness who are still seeking to follow God and to honor Him. And and he's talking about the fact that once judgment is over, then the way is open, the avenue is open for God to really demonstrate mercy through these people. They have remained faithful and God's going to bless them. See, there was a righteous minority in Jerusalem and maybe they felt uncertain about the judgment that was coming all around them. And the only hope, though, for them lay in trusting in God and Him alone. And so they were told to wait on the Lord. Again, that's pretty much a typical word in the Old Testament, meaning to trust, to rely on, to lean heavily on, as as Andy said, to push into God. Uh, Because God would indeed have His day when He's going to bring judgment to the world. But He's also going to bring salvation to those who remain faithful. And and I think that you and I would agree that waiting on God and His vindication is is tough. I mean, it's not easy. And yet the reality is that sometimes waiting on God is the only choice we've got to make, right? We've just got to wait on Him. Um, Patience isn't natural for us. Uh, And yet God says, wait. And so He's calling on the people in Zephaniah's day, wait on His deliverance. And it's going to be a deliverance that would come, first of all, in the form of God's judgment against the nations, but then it would come in the form of God's restoration of them uh, as His people. And so you have in verse 9, the deliverance of the righteous. Then I will purify the speech of all people so that everyone can worship the Lord together. My scattered people who live beyond the river of Ethiopia will come to present their offerings. On that day, you will no longer need to be ashamed. For you will no longer be rebels against me. I will remove all proud and arrogant people from among you. There will be no more haughtiness on my holy mountain. Those who are left will be the lowly and humble. For it is they who trust in the name of the Lord. The remnant of Israel will do no wrong. They will neither never tell lies or deceive one another. They will eat and sleep in safety. And no one will make them afraid. You see the tone in the book is now changing. God had been so fierce and and His judgment was so severe. And now the threat of judgment is over. Um, And the righteous remnant is going to return with an attitude of trust and and humility toward God. So in other words, judgment isn't the final word here. God's judgment was simply the means by which He wanted to bring His people back to Him. To uh, to a devotion to God as, as Lord and Savior. And so these concluding verses really, um, they contain some additional teachings concerning the day of the Lord. And, and that day of the Lord is always a two sides of, of a coin. There's the judgment, but there's also the salvation, the hope aspect. And I think what we see here in the prophet Zephaniah is that God's character, yes, includes holiness and justice and righteousness and an intolerable. Uh, uh, intolerance in of, of sin, but it also contains grace and love and forgiveness. And so these closing verses in Zephaniah uh, really are going to reveal the joy that comes when you understand these aspects of God's character, of, of his grace and his love and his forgiveness. So look at the, the verses 14 through 20, the joy of the city. <coughs> prophet says this, sing, O daughters of Zion, shout aloud, O Israel, be glad and rejoice with all your heart, O daughter of Jerusalem, for the Lord will remove his hand of judgment and will disperse the armies of your enemy. The Lord himself, the King of Israel, will live among you. At last, your troubles will be over and you will never again fear disaster. On that day, the announcement to Jerusalem will be, cheer up, Zion, Don't be afraid for the Lord, your God is living among you. He is mighty savior. He will take delight in you with gladness with his love. He will calm all your fears. He will rejoice over you with joyful songs. I will gather you who mourn for the appointed festivals. You will not be disgraced. Uh, You will be disgraced no more. And I will deal severely with all who have oppressed you. I will save the weak and helpless ones. I will bring together those who were chased away. I will give glory and fame to my former exiles, wherever they have been mocked and shamed. On that day, I will gather you together and bring you home again. And I will give you a good name, a name of distinction among all the nations of the earth, as I restore your fortunes before their very eyes, I, the Lord, have spoken." What a tremendous picture of the positive side of the day of the Lord here. God's dwelling among His people in His restored city of Jerusalem. I am reminded of that statement in the very last book of the Bible in Revelation about God dwelling among His people. (coughs) Revelation chapter 21 and verse 3. I heard a loud shout from the throne saying, look, God's home is now among his people. He will live with them and they will be his people. God himself will be with them. He will wipe every tear from their eyes. There'll be no more death or sorrow or crying or pain. All these things are gone forever. And the one sitting on the throne says, look, I am making everything new. Man, what a joyful future awaits those who humbly follow the Lord Jesus Christ. What a great day of rejoicing that's going to be. Let me close out with just another quick lesson from this book of of Zephaniah. These were God's people, and yet they had strayed. And the reality is that from time to time, every one of us find ourselves straying away from the Lord. There are days when, when we just are not following. In fact, there are days when we just want to do it our way. And, and who cares what God thinks? And, and so those are the days that God sometimes chastens us. He, he disciplines us. But when we return to Him with a broken heart, um, confessing our sin, He's just like Zephaniah pictured God here. When we return to Him, He receives us just like a loving mother who brings in a wayward, disobedient child. And, and the picture is He will love you and he'll even sing songs over you. Isn't that a wonderful picture? Can, can you see that? He's going to bring peace to your heart. He's going to quiet you with His love. And so we're going to suffer when we disobey. There's going to be some consequences perhaps. When we turn away from God and we, we want to do our own thing. And so sometimes we even carry with us the scars of our disobedience, and maybe for the rest of our lives. But the Lord, first John one nine tells us that He will forgive us. He will forgive get our He will forget our sins. And He will restore us into His loving fellowship. My prayer for each of us is that God would help us to learn to bear the consequences of our sins that have been forgiven. Because the reality is, often there are consequences to the sins. God's forgiven them, and yet there's still some consequences that you and I have to to live in. You know, God in His grace cleanses us. But God in His governance says, what you sow, that's what you're going to reap. I mean, think about King David. Uh, You know, it says when he confessed his sin of adultery, the prophet Nathan says, the Lord has put away your sin. And yet for the rest of his life, David had to live with the consequences of a a family in turmoil because of his sin of, of adultery. My prayer is that may we find joy in anticipating our future glory with God in heaven and May we experience God's gracious, loving presence with us, even as we sometimes deal with the consequences of our forgiven sins. Let's pray. I thank you so much, Father, for your word and how it teaches us about your holiness and about your expectations of us. I'm also so thankful that in Jesus Christ you have given to us the power to live above sin. Teach us what that really means to live by faith, to allow your Holy Spirit to absolutely control us. I'm so thankful, Father, that in your holiness you have given to us in Jesus Christ his very holiness, his very righteousness. So that we stand before you as clothed in your righteousness. I pray that you would strengthen us. Give to us the assurance of your forgiveness. Satan wants to remind us over and over and over again how we've blown it. How we've messed up. And sometimes those consequences of the ways in which we messed up in the past continue to haunt us. May we come to understand that all of those things are bathed in the blood of Jesus Christ. And that we can count on your love, your forgiveness. that we one day will be in your presence. And you'll declare us righteous, holy, because of Jesus Christ. In your name we pray. Amen.